Hello and welcome to What Is My Podcast About? This is a podcast where every couple weeks we take a deep dive into a specific topic to figure out if we want to make a podcast about it. Haven't found a topic yet? Maybe one day soon we will. And then we get to finally make our podcast. I look forward to it. Yeah, I look forward to making a podcast with you guys. I think it'll be fun. Uh, I'm your host, Peter Akerley. I am joined, as always, by Matthew Grace. Hello. And Keith Ramsey. Hey. Our topic for today is board games. This is actually an email suggestion, so... Quick little shout out. Thank you, Tachi Camargo. Camargo. Tachi Camargo. Thank you for sending us an email with this. Now, I do uh, need topic. to preface that she did say, Is my podcast about podcasts? I want to say, No, her podcast is not about podcasts, but ours might be. May- I- Maybe she does have a podcast. I don't know Tachi's life. Maybe she has a podcast about board games. I never heard it, so it doesn't exist. Fair. If we do not personally know of something, it does not exist. I feel bad because that means the world's population just dropped by like 90%. Uh, that's, that's way different from object permanence. <laughs> oh, before we get into that, let's just hang out. I don't get to talk to you guys very often. Anything going on in your lives? Uh, nothing really. I've been kind of bored as of late. Oh, Matt, 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 Matt. All right, so podcast canceled. Uh, thanks for tuning in, guys. Um, I'm sorry that joke was kind of flat. I will come over there, Matt. Keith, you had something you were saying about Marvel to quickly change the topic away from Matt's terrible puns. Yeah, so to we still want to try to avoid just talking about Marvel all the time, but some big news that happened recently. Uh, the first thing is that the Sony Marvel negotiation for the contract is. Uh, up in the air right now, so there's a chance that Spider-Man might not be in the MCU anymore. Yep. A bit upsetting. Uh, multiple things like the uh, hashtag save Spider-Man on there. Uh, Jeremy Renner all but threatening Sony as Hawkeye that to give back Spider-Man, please. To be fair, this is really Disney that's fucking with the whole pie. Because they hadn't agreed upon deal with Sony. And then Disney was like, what if more money for Disney? And Sony was like, no, we have a contract. We're going to stick with the contract. And Disney was like, more money for Disney or no deal at all. And Sony is fighting against that argument right now. Yeah, I really don't want another origin story movie for Spider-Man. Well, I, you know who really doesn't want another origin story? Uncle Ben. Yeah, somebody think about Uncle Ben in this situation. Uh, but honestly, I don't see it. It seems very unlikely that they won't come to an agreement in about the two to three years they need to hash one out for the next Spider-Man. Yeah. I see them definitely coming to terms of some sort. If they don't, though... I feel like we're probably not going to see Spider-Man crossover anytime in the near future or even the foreseen future because they have almost all of their properties back movie-wise. Yeah. The only ones they don't have are the ones with Sony, I believe, and that's just the Spider-Man mythos. They got everything back with the Fox deal. Uh, I think there's still this weird one with Paramount and the Hulk, but then beyond that, they have everything else. They have so much to work with, they don't need to rely on Spider-Man. They didn't when they yeah. started the universe. They don't need to moving forward. It's a shame to see him go if it does come to that, but it's not required. Yeah, so Disney wants more money, but they don't really have enough of a dog in a fight to, like, back down and take a worse deal, so. Yeah, true. And Marvel's kind of sitting fine as is with everything they have at the moment. Spider-Man, on the other hand, he's in a kind of dicey position. It's a, it's iffy, though, because, (laughs) Matt, we're just moving (laughs) past it. Like, you're forcing them now. Marvel... It is a little bit iffy for Marvel just because they did set it up to be like Spider-Man was taking the place of Iron Man and he was going to be the leader of the MCU for the coming generation and now he's potentially just not going to be in it. Who knows? Which is part of the reason I think that we're not going to see Spider-Man again if the deal falls through because why risk setting something up again just to have it fall apart at the last second? Yeah. Uh, Another interesting thing is 
Uh, Tom Holland's been pretty quiet about all of this, but he was recently just hanging out with Tony Stark, playing with like the t- uh, Iron Man and Spider-Man action figures. And uh, people have noticed he's no longer following Sony on any of his social media, but he's still following Marvel. Nice. Uh, uh, other news, though, uh, D23 did happen recently. And on top of that, they did announce three new character properties that are coming to the streaming service. Uh, I know one of them is going to make Peter very excited. So, uh, in order of the announcing, we had Miss Marvel got announced. So, nice. they're doing Camilla Khan, Miss Marvel. Uh, they announced She-Hulk. So, they're going to be a, the Hulk series. Uh, oh. Not the, the Mark Ruffalo one, but we're still going to get Hulk in the solo series. Yeah. And finally, Moon Knight was announced. Yes! Moon Knight! <laughs> <laughs> So those are three new series that are going to be coming as like short, uh, I don't know, I'm not too sure if it's going to be like kind of like a one shot small standoff thing, kind of like a small movie, or if it's going to be a limited series, but they're going to be in the universe as a whole now. Yeah. Moon Knight was the one you said the other time that yeah. has the three different personalities in the same person. Yeah. yeah. That is just And believes be... he gets his uh, orders from the god of the moon. That is going to be phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing, and I'm so stoked that Moon Knight's been announced for the, uh, Marvel Universe. Fuck. Now we have to talk about board games. We can't just talk about... Alright, guys, so new topic. (laughs) Topic's Moon Knight. (laughs) Who's ready to talk about Moon Knight for an hour? I didn't prepare for this topic. Alright, fine. Board games. We gotta do our board game topics for Tachi. That's right, Tachi specifically... Uh... Tachi, if you're listening, feel free to send us an email asking us to do an episode about Moon Knight. I will love you forever if you do. But going forward, let's talk about board games for Tachi. So do you guys have any topics within board games that you wanted to talk about? Uh, so for what I have, I, I fell and fallen into this trend of I'm just kind of doing like the history of. Uh, I went did a bunch of uh, deep dives when it comes to just board games in general, like where they started roughly, what we have an idea, how they evolved. Uh, and just certain ages of board games, because we have had a few board game booms historically. Yes. So I did some research on to get some interesting stuff about. Uh, so I kind of want to talk about the modern era of board games and kind of the renaissance they've had of late. And also the inevitable decline that is coming for us all. <laughs> uh, and then I also kind of want to talk about different classifications of board games, because I do work in a board game cafe and there's so many different types of board games. And it's helpful to just kind of know the lingo of what kind of board games there are and what kind of board games you like. Yeah. And I also found a little tidbit of information on the history of board games. And I wanted to talk a bit about the different genres of board games also. But I also wanted to uh, touch on like adoptions of other properties to board games, like movies or video games. In relation, I guess, maybe uh, I can link something that I want to talk to about that topic, to uh, homebrew rules for different board games. Yeah, homebrew is an interesting concept with board games, but uh, let's let's talk about that when we get there. Right. So, I want to start the, us off with a very silly-sounding question at the beginning. What is a board game? Because oh. the definition given to us by the internet and anyone you ask is any game played on a board. Typically, you'd move a piece or a counter around the board following a particular set of rules. Generally, it comes uh, down to a few things, I find. like yeah. Especially since now there's a bunch of different tabletop games, there's video games. I would disagree with the definition that of it being any game that's played on a board just because a lot of board games have evolved to this point where they aren't played on a board. Like, uh, there's different... Kind of like uh, Werewolf, for example. I only say this because we have a bunch of board games in front of us, and one of them is Werewolf. Yeah. Um, werewolf, I would consider to be a board game, even though there's not actually a board... Because it's a game that's played in person with people physically around you, and there's a rigid set of rules that you follow. I wouldn't consider D&D or Pathfinder or any of those role-playing games to be board games, 
because there's less lit rigid rules and it's a lot more about you playing the game with the people around you and creating the game as you play whereas these other games there are very rigid rules that you follow so it seems kind of along the course of history board games have shifted from actually requiring a board to just an overarching title to give to a wide genre of different games oh exactly and uh going through uh, like just what the combining uh method of uh, board games seems to be historically too is the things that keep coming up that people seem to agree on is for it to be a board game it does have to be something physically you're doing with the people right there yeah that combines uh in any quantity luck strategy and diplomacy yes and just to really nail the hammer home has to be done with the people physically around you using physical components so your video games and your Mario Party are not board games. They're video games. Different thing entirely. Well, yeah, they're a video game of a board game in a sense. They're played with the similar rule set, but it differs where it's more of the digital virtual media yeah. composed to what's the physical one. And the board isn't really required. Then you'd have to say, well, is Yahtzee a board game? Well, you I would, would argue, argue that Yahtzee is a board game. Yes. Uh, would you argue that something like uh, Dice Masters is a board game? I probably still even though it falls more into like a kind of like a TCG style of thing. It's kind of like a deck builder, which is also another kind of exactly, except with dice instead of cards. Yeah, I would argue that TCGs are kind of on the cusp of it, but I'd argue that they're still within the definition of uh, board games. To clarify, for those of you who don't know, TCGs, trading card game or collectible card games. Games like Magic the Gathering, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, where you collect cards and use them to build decks of cards that you play with. Yeah, another game that's kind of similar in the boat where it's kind of on the fringe of is it a board game or not would be role-playing games. Dungeons and Dragons, Call of Cthulhu. Those ones also apply all the same things you would need for a board game, but the difference is that really there's nothing you have except for the rule book for that. Yes. And sure, you can have a board to use as a map or such. Yeah. But, but it doesn't rely on said board. It, it's not relied, and it's not included within the game. Anytime you tend to have boards and maps, it tends to be something that the players themselves came up with as a way of representing things, rather than the game itself being like, here's the map you will be playing on, use this to move your pieces around. Yeah. They're very different ideas. Uh, I Yeah, I would say that role-playing games are on the cusp, but... I, it's purely arbitrary from my own perspective, but I would say that role-playing games are on the cusp, but just outside of board games, and I would say that trading card games and collectible card games are just inside the cusp of. So with that question, that leads me to the question I wanted to ask, and from what you've all said right now, I can already guess your answers. <laughs> Does a board game need a board to be called a board game? No. No. It doesn't hurt. In fact, it probably would put things into the category that wouldn't normally be categorized as a board game by having it, but it's not a requirement to be a board game. Yes, absolutely. Uh, The best example I can think of is the game Battleship. There's no board involved. It's just two little plastic pegs. Yeah, but it's absolutely a board game. Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, I suppose it makes most sense to kind of dive into our topic by talking about the history of board games and how we got to where we are now. So, Yeah, uh, so when I was looking at it, uh, the first recorded uh, instance of a board game that most people could find uh, would be around the time 5000 BCE. Uh, so board games, really, what they initially came from was bone dice. Bone dice is the first recorded type of games. Now, this itself wasn't necessarily board games. This was more on the gambling side of things, yeah. where it was mainly used for bargaining on resources and the such, and it became more popularized in uh, game form for just recreation. Uh, That's when we started getting the actual board games that, again, focused on those luck, strategy, and diplomacy. Now, the funny thing about most early board games that we have record of moving forward 
is they weren't really for kids, which a lot of people would say most board games are for are marketed to for the longest time. Yes. Uh, but these newer ones were mainly for adults to pass the time. They all almost had exclusively a versus component to it. It was you defeating your opponent in some capacity. There was none of teamwork to beat something else. It was you showing you were better than the person. This is highlighted in games such as the early versions of chess, Go. Most of those games were just you had to beat your opponent showing you were either had better strategy, diplomacy, or just luck when it came to yeah. those things. Yes. Because, like, speaking of luck, another one of the original, or one of the earliest board games that we have record of was something called Senate from uh, early Egyptian times dating back to... Uh, 3100 BC. To clarify, that's S-E-N-E-T if you want to Google it. And And try to find out how it's played. Because it's entirely based on luck. So winners at the time were thought to have had protection from the gods. And you can see depictions of it in Egyptian hieroglyphs and it's put inside ancient Egyptian tombs. Because its name came to mean uh, the game of passing. And so they were often placed in the grave to help dead through their afterlife. Yeah, and a lot of what the modern games we have now did, uh, for the most part, the framework came out of games that were used in Egypt. Uh, another popular one would have been the game of Ur. That's U-R. Yeah. Uh, it was, it's actually what's believed to be the longest standing game in existence that had a set rule set. Because this game is the precursor to Backgammon, and both of them are played pretty much the same way. So in a way, Backgammon is the oldest recorded static game, as it hasn't really changed much in that position. Just the pieces we use and essentially what it looks like is did change. Yeah, the mechanics of the game have not changed much since it was there. It's just how we look at it and what it appears to be have changed. Uh, and uh, as for the whole thing of children playing games, we didn't start seeing a turn for board games being used for children until around the year 500 BCE. That's when we started seeing, oh, games marketed to children in educational purposes or uh, other such things to like teach things. Uh, religion was used a lot for those early board games that were marketed towards children. Yeah, and it's kind of a classic argument for why board games were uh, marketed towards kids in those eras was, it, as you said, uh, board games tend to have some component of luck, strategy, and diplomacy, and it's a really easy way to teach a child or a developing mind about those different mechanics yeah. through a board game. They understand diplomacy and how to interact with players and what's a good deal, what's a bad deal through playing different kinds of board games. They understand different aspects of strategy through playing board games. They understand that sometimes luck just fucks you and you <laughs> flip five coins and all of them come up tails when all you needed was a single head. I'm very familiar with that kind of luck. <laughs> and from that point, the game's history is kind of static. Uh, it doesn't change too much. We just get variations of games moving from that point. Yeah. The next big point, if you want to go historically for video uh, for board games, was around the 1880s until the early 1900s. Yeah. Uh, that's when we had companies such as, you know... Uh, Hasbro and stuff start popping up and a lot of board games we now have this is what's kind of known as the board game boom or like the golden era of board games this is when we got uh, iconic games such as Life, Monopoly, Reversi, Chinese Checkers, Sorry, Scrabble and Risk the those core, card game yeah those core board games that everyone knows about everyone's played at some point whether they like them or not uh, but this is the era really where board games just kind of became mass produced in yeah. combination with the United States and just the market for you know the board games for the children, ages, you know, three and up, just kind of just spread everywhere. Yeah, the it's uh, the genesis of the mass market board game. The flimsy $10 box that contains hours of fun within. Where exactly. kids could really start getting into trouble. <laughs> yeah, up to this point, it was pretty much, you know, chess sets, checker sets, play back and card games. 
not really a mass-produced, a bunch of companies produced cards or these boards for it, yeah. but this was like the marketed like, oh, you need to play Risk, the game of global domination, or you need to play Clue to find out who the murderer is. Kind of the classic board games where if you ask someone who doesn't know anything about board games to name a board game, they'll probably name like Risk, Monopoly, and Life. Life. Like those kind of games. The, they all came from the same era. So I think the next kind of big thing in board games, we had a bit of a board game boom. And then in the 1900s, people were like, oh, these are cool. Let's make all of them. Every time a TV show comes out that's popular for more than one season, let's make a board game based on this TV show. So that happened to, it's more of what we're in at now, which is a more of a modern board game boom, which corresponds with the launch of Kickstarter. Kickstarter made it very easy to see the demand for certain board games, and we're back into, like, just so many board games are getting made for so many properties. Uh, and that's when, uh, what triggered 2013, where it's just, like, board games everywhere. We're back into that boom state that was back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, board games were everything, as you said. There is, I got a Resident Evil 2 board game over here. There's a Dark Souls board game. There's a CSI board game. Yeah. Assassin's Creed board game. But yeah, that... We had a similar one of those back in the mid-1900s, and that kind of caused the collapse of the board game industry for a little while there, where people stopped buying board games. It, between the so many board games for stuff people did not care about, and the genesis of video games, this new fancy form of media that everyone was into, people started buying video games, and people stopped buying board games, and no one really played board games anymore, except for kids with their families and stuff like that. Yeah, you'd have to dust off, like, you know, board games from, like, the 60s and 50s that were in your grandparents' attic to play them. Yeah. There's there's a thick layer of dust on uh, my clue box down in my basement. And then, yeah, just as you are saying, back in about 2013 is when we had the renaissance of board games as of late. And a lot of people attribute it to the fact that most video games that had kind of stolen the market from board games had started to go online. So you were no longer sitting in the room with the people you are playing with. Yeah. You were talking to people over the internet who you perhaps had never even met before. And it kind of took a lot of the personal interaction out of it. And so people who played video games for that personal interaction, the kind of coach co-op sort of games, uh, migrated back towards board games because they still allowed you to have that in-person interaction with the people at your end of the table. Yeah, because there was definitely that market there. Uh, One of the Kickstarters that I backed very early in the life of the Kickstarter website was a game called Armello. Which was very much a board game in digital uh, process. It was like a gridded game where you had a piece that had a special ability and everything was circled around dice. So, oh, you have, you know, three fight, that means you roll three dice. And then you have to try to beat the other people by drawing cards that have random encounters on them to become the next king of Armello. Uh, A lot of people attribute the kind of renaissance of board games to kind of Eurocentric games or that are not Eurocentric, but uh, Euro games, which came out in Europe initially. Uh, one of the big ones that a lot of people like to attribute it to is Catan. Yeah, Catan. Uh, Settlers of Catan kind of gobbled up the entire European market. It came out back in 1995, won the Spiel des Jahres, which was the German term for Game of the Year. Very popular game. And then slowly made its way over to North America. And people tried that game out and they're like, wow, games are so much more than just Monopoly, where I move around the board and do what it tells me when I land on a specific space. And it's now... I actually have to put in strategy and Monopoly and Risk had strategy aspects, but were a lot more heavily leaned towards the luck side of things. And they're also more complicated to learn, whereas Settlers of Catan, it had that nice balance of fun, strategic, and very simple to learn. I learned how to play just by watching two games. Yeah. Settlers of Catan definitely leans more towards the strategy, where it still has luck aspects. 
and kind of cause people to be like, if this is what a board game can be, let's see how far the rabbit hole goes, to quote The Matrix real quick. Yeah, and then there was a lot of games like that, too, that came out around the same time that became really popular. Uh, Ticket to Ride's another big one, but yeah. it just got so big, there's so many versions of it. Pandemic is another game that took right off. Yeah, uh, Carcassonne's another one, if you've ever heard about it. Just a whole bunch of similar styles and uh, complexities of games that all kind of came out to give people an idea of just what a board game could be that led people to come back to board games and then once they got back into board games we were like oh board games are popular let's make all the board games again yeah, and all the board games listed too are definitely like a person getting started in board games are ideal games just to pick yes. up too any of the games we listed there pandemic uh carcassonne Catan, and ticket to ride all fantastic games if you're interested in trying out board games try any one of those you'll have a super huge amount of fun and it'll give you an idea of the kind of games you couldn't try in the future and at this point, I want to pose the question that I want answers to later at the end of the podcast. What's your favorite board game? I just want you guys to think about it for the duration of this podcast. I mean, I think I can answer that already. Well, let, let, <laughs> you want let, me to wait till the end? Let's, let's just wait till the end, because I think I can already answer that too. <laughs> let's let the audience try and guess over the next hour or so, and then... <laughs> but I haven't even mentioned it once in this podcast yet. Yeah, that's fair. They'll figure it out. I mean... There's no way the audience is going to guess my favorite, and I already know it, but oh, okay. I want to give them a chance to just throw out random guesses, like, ah, he's definitely thinking of Clue. As a hint, I'm not thinking of Clue. <laughs> but I want them to be, like, super confident, only for them to be like, what the fuck is that game? <laughs> Snakes and Ladders. Snakes and Ladders. So that was a pretty good talk about the history of board games. Matt, what did you want to talk about? Oh, uh, I guess, well, we touched on it already a little bit, uh, adaptions of various things like TV shows and video games to board game format. Yeah. So, as we mentioned, there's Dark Souls board games, there's CSI, there's... There's the, so many The Walking Dead games. There's the Game of Thrones torture, I mean, game, board game. Uh, the Game of the board game is actually really good. Well, there's also, like, six Game of Thrones board games, and they vary from great to terrible. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the card game and the, uh... The official board game, I guess what it is, the strategy one. Yeah. That's out like four or five editions right now. Yeah. Those two are the ones that I've really enjoyed. I haven't really played the other ones. They're There's a couple that are really not mixed great. bag. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one of those things where people realize board games are making money. People realize Game of Thrones is making money. People just throw the two together, see what comes out, and they're like, well, let's make this and hope it makes money. And it's not a lot of care and effort goes into the game. It's a lot more of just trying to capitalize on the next big thing. Yeah. Although, I have played the Assassin's Creed board game. It's actually pretty well done. It has a lot about uh, scheming, keeping your tactics to yourself while you move around and try to assassinate your target without being taken out yourself. Well, there definitely is a lot of companies that do those adaptions that just really understand well the mechanics of the board game and the original game. Steamforge is one of the examples I have where they're just really good at making board games and adapting other properties into a board game that works and makes sense. Yeah, like we've all been playing uh, the Resident Evil board game. Yeah, Resident Evil 2 board game. We usually play it after recording a podcast. Fun fact about our lives. <laughs> and it's phenomenal. It really captures the essence of Red Resident Evil. I love the fact that it's just like, oh god, oh god, one of us has to get to the typewriter and save real quick or we're all gonna fucking die. Yeah. And uh, you can easily go to a room like, this is the plan, I'm gonna go through this room, gonna use the shotgun to knock back the zombie and then get crossed and the other thing. You go in the room, you have to roll with it for the random encounter, bam, seven liquors in the room with you. It's like, shit! Alright, new plan. Uh, close the door, never come back. <laughs> I'm gonna take the long way around. Yeah. That same company also released the Dark Souls board game. Yep, yeah, they also responded to Dark Souls. Which 
Sure, I appreciate the attempt at doing it, and the game is laid out phenomenally. All the pieces are amazing. The figures they have of the different creatures and the bosses are it's, phenomenal. It's a beautiful game. It's a $100 game also. Um, <laughs> I don't even know how much the Resident Evil 2 costs me to get everything. Let's not do the math real quick. <laughs> but, uh, and I can't say too much about it, since... Peter, you and I have only played it for about an hour. But... I played it a couple times outside, okay. but yeah, but not a huge amount of experience. Sure, I understand that the Dark Souls video games have a kind of history of being incredibly difficult and challenging, so they wanted to convey that in the board game format, which they did, but I think it feels like they went a little too far. It feels like rather than they went for the difficult, whereas Dark Souls, the video games in my mind have always been difficult, but in a very fair and reasonable way. Whereas I find the board game sometimes feels difficult in an unfair way where it imposes unreasonable restrictions on you as a character. Yeah. For instance, in the video game, you have your health and your stamina to manage. When you do various actions like attacking or dodging, it consumes stamina. And if you have zero stamina, you can't do anything, which means you're more likely to die. But in the board game, your health and stamina are on the same bar, so as soon as they touch, you die. Which means you could reasonably in that game sprint to death. You could run a lap around the room and just die because your stamina consumed your whole health bar. And also in the video game, whenever you die, you respawn back at a bonfire, and you have uh, you can do that as many times as you want. In the board game, however, you have a finite amount of attempts... Which, uh, sure, makes sense. You want a way to lose the game. You don't want that game just going on forever. It's like, I'm gonna try again! Yeah, but the amount of attempts that they give you for how difficult even the lowest level enemies are to beat with that whole stamina health bar management is just... It feels to me like too much of a hurdle to overcome. So I kind of wanted to uh, play around with some homebrew rules, maybe splitting up the health and stamina bars, maybe shortening them a little bit to compensate for that. I've always been a big fan of homebrewing rules for board games, uh, just because, in my experience, a lot of games are really well designed and they have a lot of thought go goes into them. But every once in a while you come up against a rule that doesn't make a huge amount of sense. For yeah. instance, one game I'm a big fan of, of is called Survive Escape from Atlantis. And you play as adventurers on the island of Atlantis as it's starting to sink into the ocean. And your goal is to get your people off of the island and onto safe haven where solid land exists. And also to use sharks, whales, and sea monsters to kill your friends to ensure that you're the only one to make it to safe haven. <laughs> the weird thing about the game is the different adventures you have, have all have different point values. And at the end of the game, your score is based on the point value of your people. But then as a tiebreaker, whoever got more people off the island wins. Which means someone who gets six level one people off the island is rewarded uh, over top of someone who got one level six person off the island. Which kind of makes sense, but also at the same time it means it's more advantageous for you to get a whole bunch of small people off the island than to get your big people off the island. Which is a little bit backwards. So I always play with the rules in reverse, where it's whoever gets the most people off the island wins the game by default. And then as a tiebreaker you look at the scores of your people. Just because that feels more logically sound to me for it to be the... Higher value people, like, if you're trying to s survive on an island, it's generally going to be better to have two incompetent people than to have one super competent person, because even if they're bad at the work, they can get twice as much work done in the time. So I always play with, it's better to get more people off the island. This is a weirdly specific example I'm giving, but, like, just the idea of, if a rule doesn't make sense to you, try it a couple different ways, and if you find one that makes more sense to you, Fucking play it that way. Who cares what the what's in the rule book? It's all about you having fun playing it's the game. It's like, uh, I've played Monopoly a couple times, but every time I've played was with different people, and they all have their own 
way to do certain things. Well, with the, that the biggest homebrew rule for that everyone knows that thinks free is free parking. Free parking. There's no free money in free parking. Yeah. Whenever you pay taxes, it goes to the bank. Much like in the real world, you don't pay your taxes and they just go to a random pile where if you park somewhere, you get all the money that anyone has paid in the form of taxes. Uh, or some other examples, too, of homebrewing the game for uh, differences, increasing the amount of players. I'm sure both of you know about Super Risk. Yes. Where you take two different versions of Risk and just combine the maps so you can have players playing between those two maps. So you essentially double the amount of players you can have without causing a bunch of people to be scrunched into a small board. And you just take certain areas on the map to like connect them to the other spots so that there's still a way to transverse between them. Uh, another good example is uh, one of the games I really enjoy, which is Betrayal at House on the Hill. The game already has it built in that it has scaling uh, villains based on how many players you have for that difficulty. So it's not too hard to scale it past what the game has, especially with the fact that every character model has two sides to it. So you don't have to make up character stats. You can just write down a piece of paper the stats of the side that someone's not using and put a figurine down to mark that new person using the other character. Yeah, mm -hmm. for instance, there's the little boy in Betrayal at the House on the Hill. Or Betrayal at House on the Hill. Yeah. Uh, and he, there's two sides. If you want to play as little boy, you either play as Brandon Jaspers or you play as Peter Akimoto. They both have slightly different stats, and you just kind of choose which one you want to play as. But if you want to play with more people, you could just have one player playing as Peter Akimoto and one player playing as Brandon Jaspers. Even though in a normal game of Betrayal, if you're following the rules as they're written, only one of those characters is being played, there's nothing wrong with homeworlding it where you can just have both of the characters being played at once. Yeah, because most of the bosses in the game will have, like, they have, you know, 10 health points plus two for every other player in the game. Yeah. Because they take into account that, well, if you're playing with two people, well, then it makes sense they should only have a small pool of health because it's a one-on-one -on -one fight. But if they have the full, you know, group of six playing in the game, you want it to be tougher so that they just can't, you know, all take their turns and just butt burst the boss down. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a little, a couple things, like, the very first time we ever tried that game, the encounter that we ended up getting... The villain or the traitor would have had a more advantageous time if we had actually explored the mansion more, had more rooms unlocked. Yeah. Whereas we had started the haunt really early, so they lost in a couple of turns as soon as the haunt started, so yeah, it was very unfair for them. Yeah. Yeah. So in a case like that, you could elect to like, delay the haunting for a different one. Oh, of course. So you want everyone to enjoy the game and not just have, you know, one of the random components of the game prevent the game from getting to that point where it's enjoyable. Yeah, because... The main purpose of playing a board game is just fun, that, unless you're playing for high stakes. Betrayal has, uh, so the rules for triggering the haunt in Betrayal is uh, you normally roll... Uh, haunt dice. Yeah, you roll the haunt dice, and your goal is to roll less than the number of uh, omens that have been drawn. Yeah. And if you roll less than that, then the haunt triggers. And some people don't like that because, yeah, the first omen you draw, there's a small chance that you'll just trigger the haunt right away. And so one of the home rules I've seen people start using is, uh, instead of that, it's you roll dice equal to the number of omens you've drawn, and your goal is to roll, like, a six or higher. So on your first two, you're guaranteed not to trigger the haunt, yeah. and it's not until your third one that you start having a chance of triggering the haunt, and even then it's a really small chance. So it kind of does the same thing. It's a home roll, but it shifts it away from a potential really early haunt and makes it a much later haunt. Which allows the board to be developed and makes the game a little bit more balanced in the late and game. gives more strategy for moving from room to room. Yeah, yes. another good one I've seen used for uh, Betrayal as well is uh, that the haunt can't be triggered until at least amount of omens are equal to the amount of players in the game. I like that rule. Uh, I would even add the caveat, because I've seen it fucking happen, 
at the very least have a home rule of the haunt can't be triggered until everyone's had a turn. Because I've seen yeah. like a five-player yeah. game where on the fourth player's turn, everyone's drawn an omen, and so the haunt gets triggered before the first fifth player has a turn. Yeah. And then the haunt ends up being the player to the haunt revealer's left go, uh, is the traitor. It's like, cool, the player who hasn't had a turn yet <laughs> that is guy's the been traitor. standing by the entrance to the house the whole time, looking at us menacingly. He's like, guess what? I'm evil. <laughs> <laughs> had to think about it really hard. Yeah. Meanwhile, everyone else here has got, like, evil weapons in their head. He's like, hey... I'm evil on my own. <laughs> hey, uh, guy over there that just went through that door, I see you're holding a stick of dynamite and a demonic dagger. Uh, I'm the villain, but I don't have anything in my hands right now. Guy ran to the bottom of the stairs. You have a shotgun. Cool. Yeah. I'm a big fan of homebrewing rules just because, as I was saying, yeah, games are great. The developers often put a lot of time into their rules that they want to try, but oftentimes they just have a blind spot for certain rules, especially... So one of my biggest gripes with certain games is the rule books don't always make sense. And there's oftentimes situations where if you're a game developer and the only time you ever play the game is with people who you're teaching the game to and you never watch people just pick up the rule book and play it, then it's very easy for you to have weirdly written rules that make no sense but never actually coming up as an issue because if you're explaining it to people in the room, they're going to have a lot easier time describe understanding it than just reading it off a rule book. So it's very easy for game developers not to realize that the rule book does make a fucking lick of sense. Oh, and that's definitely true because I myself have dabbled with making my own board game rules. I've done a test run about three times with a group of people playing this game where it's essentially, uh, it's based off the uh, Fates and Eight IP that it's, I'm doing summoner battles essentially. So they're fighting each other, trying to eliminate their players. And I've run into multiple situations where the rules that I have written down make perfect sense to me. And I'm explaining it to the players, but then some players that don't have the chance to get the ex explanation because in my party I have groups of people that don't know and people that do know uh, verbally from me. And then I have to get clarification on that. So I've had to change the rule set three times to account for either rules not being properly explained or systems that I thought made perfect sense for balance just completely being exploited by somebody. Yeah, so one thing I highly recommend if you're ever considering making a game or if you have a game that you've made a couple, uh, started to prototype and you're testing it out, don't just always play it with people who you're explaining it to as you play. Fucking get a group of people who have never played the game before to sit in a room with the game and the rulebook and you in another room and them to play it themselves and then come to you afterwards and be like, it was a great game. I didn't understand what was happening here, here, or here. Just to give you a good idea of, well, this part of the rulebook needs to be better written and touched up a little bit to make more sense. Because I find it's it's the same problem where if, you're ever, if you've ever written an essay for a class you've taken and you read through it as you're writing it and you're like, yeah, this all makes perfect grammatical sense. And then you come back like two or three days later and it's like, yeah, it still makes perfect grammatical sense. And then you get someone else to read it and they're like, yeah, none of this makes sense. You wrote the word the four times in a row right here. But when you're reading it, your brain doesn't read what's actually on the paper. Your brain reads what you meant to put on the paper. Exactly. And you don't really think about it. So it really helps to have a second set of eyes actually look at it rather than hear your own interpretation. Because you're obviously going to verbally describe it well. It's an issue of whether or not the rule book itself describes it well. Oh, yeah. And when making a game... Everything is based on opinion. It's the opinion of the person making the game on how it may play out. They have no idea what another person will feel of that scenario, so always include other people in your discussions. Yeah. And, like, classic example, you were talking about not understanding exploits that were there. Uh, I remember there was a time when you were uh, developing your new role-playing system for when we did our whole superhero role-playing system. Yeah. And you're like, all right, this is the bare bones of the system. I don't have any of the mechanics introduced yet. Just this is the bare bones. 
I want you guys to have test fights and try and break the system as much as you can. Yeah. Just so I can see where the issues are and what kind of limitations I have to put in yeah. place. And it was a fa- fantastic learning process because you like had uh, ex- or levels for s- stamina and levels for health. And you're like, all right, so people are probably going to put them fairly balanced. They've got a good pool of both stamina and strength. Not realizing that someone can put all of their points into stamina, have no health points whatsoever, and just like hope to be the first one to attack and put all of their stamina into an attack and kill anyone they come in contact with, essentially being One Punch Man from the comic books. Oh, definitely, because yeah, uh, this mistake I made specifically in that one was I did not take into account maximums or yes. minimums for things. So I did give them the system of the combat and this how it works, so it doesn't matter what your superpower is, just assume it's whatever and you can describe it as you go through. And then I, I can't remember who it was, it might have been you specifically, who just walked right up to another character, dumped all of your stamina into one attack, and just killed them right there. Yeah, yeah it was a fun little demo, and it got us to realize there should probably be some limitations on these stats, because when you're not considering min-maxers, you don't tend to think about the extreme cases, you tend to think about, what would I do if I built a character? That doesn't seem busted at all. Yeah. So help me make sure it was more balanced when we went into the system, and there were definitely characters that had powerful abilities in that game, but no one had the ability to just outright just murder somebody in a one-on-one fight. There would be some back and forth at the very least, because I think the fix I did was I put a limit to how much stamina you could put into something based on your physical dice. Yes. So you could put, like, say you have a physical of four, you could put a total of four extra stamina points into that attack. Yeah. Just because, and it makes sense, if you're... A weak kid with a huge amount of stamina. It doesn't matter how much stamina you could put into an attack. You don't have the actual strength to put it into the attack. So it makes sense. And it's the kind of stuff that you're just not going to consider unless you do this kind of random playtesting where you're not involved in the process. You're just watching the process uh, unfold. And the more in-depth and variety in your game, you have to do that so much playtesting to get it through. I can only imagine how many times Patrell had to go through playtesting just to the, the raw amount of possibility in that game. There is yeah. games where another player is the villain. There's a game where everyone else is the villain and one player is the good guy. There's versions of the game where you're not even fighting anyone. You're fighting the house. There's versions where you don't know who the bad guy is because you all got dealt cards randomly and you have to check and see what, whether you're the bad guy or the good guy. Uh, but then you have games like you know Monopoly and Risk where they don't really require that much specific uh, playtesting except for rounding out some of the rules that could be exploited, like the uh, resupply rules in yeah. most Risk games where you're trading the cards. There has to be an idea of how much you're getting back from that, and is there a way to exploit that if a person does the right thing to collect, like, you know, a lot of cards and then cashes in for, like, 200 soldiers. Yeah, uh, playtesting is an often... It's not overlooked by game developers. It's oftentimes overlooked by the people who play the games of, like, uh, it's not super important to playtest. It's hugely important to playtest the games. You have no idea how busted a game would be if it wasn't playtested, and... People didn't find the edge cases they weren't considering. And that's one of the things, too, that you have to be worried about if you are kickstarting games, uh, that just making sure they have a system in place, they're not just kind of rushing it for the sake of it. Yeah. Uh, I Every time I back a board game, I thoroughly uh, investigate all the rules and stuff they got in place just to look at it see how much effort was put into it. And I've backed quite a few board games. I've gotten good ones. Uh, I've uh, gotten... Uh, the Resident Evil 2 one example, a uh, card game called Strife I got, which is essentially the game, uh, the card game War, but if the cards had special abilities and you only got to use each of them once, so you have to outsmart your opponent into what you're playing versus what they're playing based on the random modifier of the battlefield, because different battlefields give certain other characters uh, a chance or a bonus to their fighting score. I, I love Kickstarter, and I think it's a fantastic site. I also think it's way too fucking easy to abuse. Um... 
And so I I think Kickstarter is great. I love it specifically for one. I've backed uh, quite a few projects on Kickstarter. And every time I back it, I ask myself, is this something that I would have no way of getting if it weren't for this Kickstarter backing? Because if it's something like someone wants to make Monopoly Jenga themed or something like that, <laughs> it's like that's like not a crazy product that would not exist without Kickstarter. Whereas there's a board game I bought called Heroes Wanted, and yes. you play as a bunch of D-list superheroes just trying to become famous enough and well-known enough to enter into the superhero team. That's <laughs> like, a f- I was going to say, with some great missions, such as stopping uh, people that are littering, or yeah, stop- breaking up a bootleg DVD factory. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, stopping people who are littering, breaking up a bootleg DVD factory. Uh, people who are breaking mirrors in a funhouse is also a problem. And then there's one real mission, which is kind of funny, which is just a bunch of people breaking out of an insane asylum. I like how there's just a random real mission mixed in with a bunch of silly yeah. crimes. Uh, yeah, my favorite one is the the first scenario that suggests you play through is called littering, loitering, and jaywalking. Because those are the crimes that are being committed that you have to stop. And there's specific parts of the board. Like, you can exist on the uh, sidewalks, and you can exist on the crosswalks. The villain's gonna run through the middle of the street. You're not allowed to go through the middle of the street. Yeah, you're an upstanding citizen. You can't jaywalk. (laughs) You can't break the rules. So you gotta wait for him on the other side of the street when he gets close enough that you can punch him in the face or cross the road uh, illegally. Also, I believe in that that mission itself, you also couldn't stop on the crosswalk. You had to cross the street, but you had to use the crosswalk. You could move through the crosswalk, but you could not stop on the crosswalk. Yeah. Um, Another thing I love about that game is because it's based on, like, superhero lore... Or not superhero lore, but like superhero mythos. Every character had a quirk assigned to them that you as a player had to fulfill. Like, for instance, Keith in our first game of playing was playing as a mysterious ninja was his hero name. And yet his quirk was uh, web-sessed or something. And he essentially had to compose a fake tweet for every single action he performed. Yeah, we built in like the whole idea that while I was playing this game, they had a Twitter page that they definitely didn't own that was constantly being updated by their number one fan. And then there was also Captain Giraffe, who is my favorite superhero of all time, who's just a random guy who can stretch his bottom, uh, his limbs super long, who had the uh, quirk that he had to talk in third person using his hero name. So he could never be like, I will save the day. It was always, Captain Giraffe will save the day. Also, I believe the card had one of the best quotes I've ever seen of giraffes with the nunchucks of the animal kingdom. Yeah, fucking amazing. Wasn't there any, wasn't there a penalty if you didn't? Yeah, so at the end of the game, you earn a number of bonus points based on your quirk, but every time you don't follow your quirk, that amount of bonus points gets reduced by a certain amount. So if you keep not following your your quirk, other players are going to get points that you're not cashing in on because you refuse to follow your quirk. Yeah. Super fun. Great game to play in a room with people who aren't playing the game because other people are going to be like, why the fuck are these people acting like psychopaths over here? <laughs> Me just here yelling, hashtag dropkick, ninja shabanish. <laughs> oh, such a good game. I want to uh, play that one again. I've only played it once. Yeah, so, but that's an example of a game that I, there is no goddamn way that game would ever get made if it was not for Kickstarter. Oh, no. So I, I'm fully on board with supporting games like that on Kickstarter because they're games I know I would love to play and games that would not exist without Kickstarter. But you know for sure that before I backed that on Kickstarter, I read in-depth on everything they had posted to make sure that this was going to be an actual good game and not just a hodgepodge of random chaos that they didn't really think about. To be fun, it is a hodgepodge of random chaos, but a really fun hodgepodge of random chaos, and they put a lot of thought into that random chaos. And uh, on the talk of like all these board games coming out too uh, from Kickstarter, 
Uh, one trend I have been noticing with board games is they are definitely becoming more complicated as they go on too. Uh, whereas rule books used to be like two pages of you roll the dice and move forward. If you land on this square, you move backwards. Yeah. Uh, to, uh, for example, the Betrayal House on the Hill, uh, the player manual. So not even the scenario manual, which has 100 games in it. The player manual, which has the rules for how to play the game, has got like 30 pages in it. Well, we were discussing before this podcast, Matt wanted to talk about the Dark Souls board game. Yeah. And he was considering printing off the rule book to bring it to talk about. And then he I looked the it game. up. And it was uh, 39 pages. It's a 39-page PDF uh, rule book. So yeah. the issue is that if a person's trying to get into board games and they see that, th- that's definitely intimidating. And they don't want to start playing a board game where I have to, you know, read a book to find out how to play this no. game. Though in no. the case of the Dark Souls one, most of that text is just a bunch of flavor text about the characters and the weapons. But it's still a matter of sorting through those 39 pages and finding the information that you actually need to play. So if you have a friend that's on the fence trying to get into board games, it's probably better to start with some of the simpler ones. Maybe start with a clue. Uh, To be fair, even though Betrayal is kind of out there with the rules, like for the amount of it, it is a very easy game to pick up compared to some of the other ones. It's So the thing about the Betrayal rulebook is like half of those rules apply to After the Haunt. So it's very easy to get someone to play Betrayal because you teach them half the game and they can jump right in. And then it's not until the haunt that you have to bother worrying about the other half of the rule book that they have to learn through. Especially if you're playing with a homebrew rule that forces the haunt to happen a little later, they have more time to get used to the main rules that they need to actually play. So I really recommend with those kind of games, ideally play with someone who's played before because it's a lot easier to learn from someone who has an understanding of the game and can help you with some of the trigger cases than it is to read a 39-page rule book and understand from that. I also recommend playing as you go. If you try and read a whole rule book and then start playing, you're going to have to keep going back to the rule book anyway. So I recommend doing the setup as you're reading the setup portion of the rule book. And then it'll describe what you can do on your turn. Start playing through your turns as you read the rule book. Their first game's going to be a hot mess and you're probably going to get some rules wrong. Yeah. But it's a lot easier to understand the rules through playing through them than it is to try and read the rule book and then play based off of what yeah. you just read. Like uh, one game I played recently and taught to two of my friends called Suro. There's two different variations of the game. There's one where you place tiles on the board and you move your piece corresponding to the path on those Suro, tiles. Game of the path. Yep. And then there's <laughs> Suro. Of the, the seas. Of the seas with the same concept. Your pieces are ships and there's sea monsters that navigate the board and move depending on how dice roll. As we were playing, I couldn't remember the specific details of how the sea monsters moved. Yeah. So I kept having to refer back to the book to see, okay, what happens when the sea monster, or what happens when we roll this? What happens when the sea monster kills the other sea monster? How do I get more sea monsters in? Classic issues, but it would have been a lot easier for you to just kind of jump into the game and start playing than if you had have had the thought, well, I'm not 100% sure how the sea monsters work. So before we play, I'm going to spend 15 minutes refreshing my mind with the rulebook. Oh yeah, and Just since kinda... I was the one who was more familiar with the game, I had the rulebook by me. I'd do my turn so the others could see what they could do. And then as they were doing their thing, I was half paying attention to what they were doing and if they asked me any questions, and half combing through the book to what I was trying to find. Sarah is another great one because, uh, especially as the original Sarah, uh, just the game of the path, is like a five-minute understanding session. Like, it takes five minutes to learn everything there is to that game. It takes 15 minutes to play. It's a fantastic just like, we got time to kill before we go to see this movie. Let's play Suro real quick. Oh, you don't know Suro? That's all right. It's only going to add like a couple minutes to our playtime for me to teach it to you. And that's the fun thing of it too. And 
uh, in the regards of board games too, like I think you and me, Peter, are the ones who get the most amount of board games just for our own collections. You yeah. both have a big stack of board games in our places. Uh, and other thing that I find helps is I, I personally know that whenever I get a new game, uh, if I'm going to try to convince other people to play it, because usually I get the very complicated, difficult games, yeah. I make sure to learn as much about that rule set I can before people even get to my house to play the game. I'll read through the rule book, study it so that it can follow me. And I find if you're playing with people that don't know the game, always try to position them as far from the start of the game as you can. So they yeah. can see other players play. Yeah, for instance, if you have six players playing and two of them haven't played before, try and set those two players next to each other and have the player to their left go first. So that it goes all the way around the table and they have as many turns watching other people take their turn and to get a chance to kind of learn what a turn looks like. I have the really fun habit, because I also like to buy fairly complicated games. I have the really fun habit of, I will play a game that is meant for like three players by my fucking self to make sure I fully understand the rules before I'm like, alright guys, let's play this game. Because I want to pull out a game and be like, alright, don't worry about it. I know exactly what's going on. I'm going to do this. And because I've played by myself, I know that you want to do this to fuck me over for what I just did. Yep. I think there was only one time I played a board game with you that you were teaching me and you had to reach for the rule book. Yeah. It's kind of, it just imagine the situation of you playing a board game with someone who's having trouble. It's like, don't worry, I can do this for you. And you start playing <laughs> for them. It was like, you, you just won the game for me. I know. <laughs> fuck you you lucky son, <laughs> son of a bitch if you weren't so good at strategy you wouldn't have won I want to play again <laughs> uh, so I've actually recently been buying more cooperative games as opposed to competitive games because I feel less weird playing a cooperative game by myself because at least that way we're supposed to all pool our strategy together anyway so it makes sense for me to oh, work yeah, with myself there's definitely a lot of good cooperative games out there one that comes to mind instantly is uh, the uh, legendary game the card deck building Oh, game. Marvel Legendary? Yes. yes. Where you have to work together to beat the villains, and the mechanic of the game, you just have to stop them from escaping into the uh, city, uh, as opposed to, there's another version where you play the villains, and you have, wait, no, I think you're playing the villains, and you gotta stop the heroes from getting to the bank. Yeah. yeah. And that's another uh, case of an adapted IP to a board game format. And this one was in the genre of uh, deck builder, which is... To my knowledge, a relatively recent addition to the genre list. It's kind of an adapted version of a TCG. Yeah. So let's let's talk about some different genres just to give people a bit of an understanding. Because we mentioned Deck Builder a couple times, we've mentioned some other terms. So to kind of jump into it, first and foremost, yeah, we've talked about Deck Builders a couple times. Um, deck Builders are a kind of game where everyone starts with the exact same deck of cards. And it's usually ten cards... Most of them help you buy more cards, have some form of money on them, and most of them help you do what the main goal of the game is. So if it's a game where you're fighting against another player, most of your cards will help you buy more cards, and some of your cards will help you do damage to the other player. And then over the course of the game, there's going to be cards that you're going to buy from a market using your own cards. So for instance, you'll have five cards in your hand, four of them are money, so you can buy four money worth of cards. And you'll add them to your deck, and then you'll shuffle your deck, and you'll draw five more cards from it, and those five cards will potentially start adding in more and more new cards to it. So yeah, you play them like any you would any trading card game. The only difference is you don't have to go to buy booster packs. Yeah. You have everything already in the deck, and you just build onto it based on how the game's going. Yeah, you don't build similar to TCG games, except instead of building your game deck before you play, playing with a pre-built deck, 
you build your deck as you play. So no. And so as where in other games you have your strategy right off the beginning of the game, this one, your strategy develops as you play. Yeah. Your strategy ends up being largely informed by what cards are available to you in the market. So. Exactly. And what cards you see your opponents or your allies pick up. Yeah. It's a large part of, like, a really good one. Uh, this is going to make me sound weird. A really enjoyable one to me is the Harry Potter deck building game because it's a cooperative deck builder yeah. and you're all working together. And so you can kind of focus on it a little bit and be like, all right, Matt, you've got a couple good healing cards already. Why don't you just go for all the healing cards and you keep me and Keith alive? Keith, you've got a lot of good attack damaging cards, so we'll help you get more attacking cards so that you can do stuff. And I'll just get a lot of like support cards that help you guys do what it is that you want to do more. And that way we can all kind of focus on what cards we want to buy. And we see a really big attack card come out and be like, alright, let's try and make sure Keith can get that. Because Keith's got really good attack cards already in his deck. And he can capitalize on that better than me or Matt could. Right. Yeah. And then the difference that tends to happen, I find, when it's a versus deck building game. So games like Star Crusade or Heroes Brigade. Yeah. Where... You have your starting deck, which has usually based on a theme. So Heroes Brigade, it's heroes and villains of the decks. Star Brigade, you pick a faction. Uh, and then what happens is there's the neutral cards. So they're like, you'll be like, you know, mercenaries or something on those lines. And then every turn, they'll get flipped up for new cards. And then you're competing with your opponent to buy those cards. Yeah, there'll be times like, holy crap, there's a ship there that will destroy my opponent's entire base. I gotta buy that right now so that he doesn't have a chance to get that and use it against me. So it's a lot of similar strategy, but from different ideas. You have to think about what's good for your opponent. And sometimes you buy cards because they're great for you. Sometimes you buy cards because they're great for your opponent yeah. and terrible for you, but you just don't want your opponent to get their hands so on it. You're essentially just burning your hand down to make sure they don't get that. Yeah. Like uh, one card, uh, or one deck builder I'm a big fan of is Star Realms. And in that game, you start with your own uh, kind of neutral deck, but then there's four different factions within the game. And they all kind of play off each other, and the more you lean into a single faction, the more that faction uh, benefits you. So, for Also, instance, I meant Star Realm, not Star Brigade. Yeah. <laughs> so, for instance, there's the Blob Army, which is just a bunch of alien life forms that have essentially gained enough sentience to fly through space without a ship, but just as themselves. And there are some cards where it's like... This one deals one damage for every blob you've already played this turn. It's like, I'm not playing blob, but Matt has like 12 blobs in his deck. And if he pulls this and four other blobs, that card becomes a fucking bomb. I can't let him get it. I'm buying this card and it's going to do nothing for me, but it's going to keep Matt from having an explosive turn in the future. And yeah. it's that kind of logic you have to put into these kind of games. So that's one kind of game. Uh, next up, we got kind of cooperative games they're pretty standard you understand the idea right off the bat they're games where you and every player at the table is working together uh and you kind of have to pool your strategies to some degree but also just like listen to your teammates and also sometimes ignore your teammates and do what you think is best and it's a lot of working together for a common goal you either all win together or you all lose together there's no middle ground and since most board games are games you play against other people, it can be a little difficult getting into your first co-op game because it does feel a little odd between your turns talking with the other people playing, okay, this is what you should do, this is what you should do for me, and that is fine. Yeah, we won, but I won more. Yeah. Uh, the nice... So, as I said before, I work at a board game cafe. The nice argument I like to give for cooperative games uh, whenever I'm explaining them to... Uh, people is like, if you're here with your family, you don't want to go home fighting. So like you play a cooperative game, it's almost guaranteed, or you play a competitive game, it's almost guaranteed you're going to be upset with each other when you're done. 
because uh, you're just going to end up doing something that angers your opponent uh, because it's a part of the game. Yeah. You play a cooperative game, there's a pretty solid chance you won't be upset with each other when you're done. There's still a chance you'll lose and you'll be mad. Like, Matt, you fucked us over right there by not doing the right thing at that one point. But there's a pretty solid chance you won't hate each other when you're done. And to be fair, there is the two types of cooperative games. The one where you win or lose together, or the one where you all have to work together to beat the thing, but only one person wins. Yeah, so there's also semi-cooperative games, which is kind of the next one. And there's, yeah, there's essentially two kinds of semi-cooperative games. The first one is like you just described, everyone's working together. A perfect example of this, I already mentioned earlier, it's the Heroes won a game I got off Kickstarter. Yeah. Essentially, you all have to work together to defeat the supervillain who's littering and jaywalking across the street. And if he escapes, everyone loses, you all fail. If, however, you manage to defeat the supervillain, uh, then it comes down to who got the most fame points over the game because they become the next big superhero. So yeah. you have to work together to defeat the villain. You have to do a lot of, all right, man, I need you to hit him as hard as you can right now because if you don't hit him, we can't possibly do enough damage to kill him and so we're all going to lose. But at the same time, you're like... I really need Matt to hit him as hard as he can, because if Matt hits him really hard, then I can hit Matt really hard and get lots of points for doing that. Yeah, because yep. the whole point is you want to be the famous hero, so anyone else trying to be a hero at that instant, you need them to win, but you don't want them to be known. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's one example of the semi-cooperative game. The other type of semi-cooperative game is games like Betrayal at Host on the Hill, yeah. where it starts off cooperative, and then it ends up being kind of all versus one, or different variants. So Betrayal at Host on the Hill I would definitely describe as semi-cooperative, because there are absolutely certain scenarios that kind of mess with that a little bit. So there are some scenarios where you're all together through the entire game, and it's fully cooperative, and it's a great game. There are some scenarios where you're not going to be cooperative at all. Like there's one where the host starts flying through the air, and you have to fight for parachutes to jump yeah. out of the host. And there's a finite number of parachutes, so some people aren't going to survive. And there's somewhere it just ends up being Matt's a villain, and the rest of us are all heroes, and we have to work against Matt. And you don't know that going in. You don't know which scenario it's going to be going into the game. So you have to balance between, I want all of us to be strong, because if Keith is super weak and Matt ends up being the villain, then that's not a helpful ally. But at the same time, I don't want Keith to be super strong because if we have to fight against each other at the end, I want to be the strongest one. Yeah, so you have to kind of balance on, like, keeping everyone at a relatively close level of power, but also bank on, like, well, if I'm the villain, though, and I'm equal to power to all of them, they'll easily overpower me. So do I want to make that play of making myself stronger? Knowing that making yourself stronger is just going to make other people unhappy with you if you do end up being on the same team. Yeah, because if there's literally an equal split of it could be you're the villain, it could be someone else the villain, it could be a combination, or there's no villain. Yeah. You can also play to the excuse, though, that you're just collecting things, you're collecting power, and once the villain is determined, then you can redistribute that power. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. You can trust me. But you could also end up in a scenario where you're collecting power and stuff like that, and everyone's like, alright... Well, as long as Keith isn't the enemy, we're, or isn't the bad guy, we're fine, because Keith is super powerful, and if he's on our side, then we're looking great. And then you end up with one of those ones where it's a free-for-all, and it's everyone versus everyone. It's like, alright, it's not everyone versus everyone, right, quick. Real quick, we've got to kill Keith. So oh it's no, actually Keith fair. is the villain, we better beat him. <laughs> Wait guys, I just like collecting knives and guns. Who was the least bit surprised by that? So those are the kind of types of cooperative games. We then also have party games, which is... Games like, I hate to mention it, but Cards Against Humanity, all those different games that, like, yeah, if you're out drinking with friends or just having any sort of, like, party with your friends, they're kind of easy to pick up games that have very little rules in them. Yeah, and where, trivia. Trivia games, 
Werewolf's a perfect example of yeah. it because you just need one person who's relatively sober and knows the game, and then everyone else is just doing whatever they're told whenever they're told. Uh, there's also the Dark City games, which are they're a little bit more complicated, but they're meant to be party games that are like the icebreaker thing where uh, they work kind of similar to Werewolf where you're trying to find out. One's called Salem. You have to find out who the witch is, and the people are the witches are trying to stay hidden. There's one called Tortuga, which is you're a bunch of uh, privateers, and at the beginning of the game, you're assigned a nation. So there's two boats you're loading up with gold, uh, and there's the three factions. So there's the British, the Spanish, and the Portuguese. And you are trying to essentially uh, get, find out who your allies are, and then at the end of the game, make sure more of your allies are on the boat with the more gold, because that's how you win the uh, ship. So, for example, say it's a three-way split with all the people on one boat, gold goes to nobody, but if you have, say, you know, you're British and you have another British guy in there and it's one Spanish guy with you, then you steal a ship from him and get all the gold on it. Yeah. So you all have to work together to collect the gold, but then you're trying to position your place as correctly. So they are a little bit more complicated for how the rules work, but also great party games that are quick and easy to pick up and short games. Yeah, any kind of game that like works for a significant number of people. like Essentially, if it works for more than five people and it's really quick and easy to pick up, it's probably a party game. It might not present itself as a party game, but if it fits within those constraints and it's the kind of game you could pull out at a party... It's a party game. Yeah. Yeah. We're sure you can pull out a board of a chess board at a party. <laughs> and most people will probably know how to play chess. That's definitely not a party game. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Ain't no party like a chess party. Because a chess party ends immediately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's a lot of uh, still popular party games coming out now. A uh, uh, recent one, uh, not super recent, but Exploding Kittens. Yep. Another popular one. Uh, currently the Sinai and Happiness guys have the trolley game coming out. Where it's, uh, it does the whole uh, idea of like, you know, it's the trolley where it's like, you know, a newborn baby and your family members. Which one do you go down the track because you can't stop the train? And what it does is the two parties will pick different things on the track. And then you get a chance to put a, a, a changing factor to it to the other side to try to force another person to flick, uh, flick the track. So it'll be like, oh, no, it's, it's like, oh, just graduated from uh, university as a doctor. And the other side will be a play school full of babies. And then the other teams will flip it over, so they'll put above the guy that did the doctor thing. It's like, he really believes in the message of Hitler. And then above <laughs> the babies, like, we'll grow up to be a serial killer. And you have to decide, which one do you go down? Yeah. Terrifying take on the classic trolley problem. There's also the game Bears vs. Babies by the same people who made Exploding Kittens, where you have to build uh, an army of bears to fight an army of babies. Pretty silly game. Uh, fun if you don't like babies, because you get to kill a bunch of babies. <laughs> yeah, the party games are, tend to be really stupid or silly in the concept of them, and just get weird. Yeah. Uh, so, after party games, uh, another kind of category I like to talk about is story-based games. So, these ones are a little bit less common, but there's a lot of games out there where the game itself is not what you're playing it for. It's more so for the story that you end up telling while you're playing the game. So. Oh yeah, I remember... Uh... One heavily story-based game. I cannot remember the name for the life of me, because I just remembered it. It was very heavily Dungeons & Dragons story setting, and there were three different rings around the board that you travel around, collect items, and you try to progress further into the center. It's called Talisman. It's not a good game. <laughs> yes. I, I remember... I think I got Talisman for free digitally. Yeah. <laughs> I remember there were lots of problems we had. It was a great game, but there were some horrible rules that we... I don't found needed change. I don't find Talisman to be a terrible game, even though I just said it's not a great game. I find Talisman to be a horribly unbalanced game, mm. where there are certain. It's a game where there's a whole bunch of different characters, and that's fine, and all the characters have different abilities, and that's a great way to make a game. But 
I get the feeling they did not play test it at all because certain abilities are a thousand times better than other abilities. Like one ability is like you can't walk into town to go shopping because you're an old hag. And another ability is you're an assassin. If you're on the same square as another player, they die immediately. And it's like, <laughs> how are those considered equal characters to play as? It's like that old joke of the would you rather game. Would you rather be on fire or have a, a credit card that has a million dollars? Be on fire. Absolutely. <laughs> Not a contest. Would you rather have your normal teeth or wooden teeth? Uh, then there's also uh, Mice and Mystics is another great one. Where if you've never played it, it's another kind of D&D themed game. Except instead of being like you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, uh, the story is that you're a bunch of heroes who got transformed into mice by an evil witch. And you have to fight against spiders and rats and uh, centipedes in order to escape from the castle. And then slowly come back to fight the witch and turn yourselves back into humans. So it's a cute little game. But yeah, fun game, interesting mechanics, but much more heavily built around the story that you're telling while playing the game than it is around the game itself. Uh, another game that kind of falls into this category and also falls into the party game category that's really good is uh, Red Dragon Inn. Red Dragon Inn's fantastic. Because oh. it's one of those games that are really simple to pick up and play, and it can definitely be a party game, but it has that enough to be an after-party game where it's just some of the stuff that's going to happen just gets ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, and it has that classic Dungeons & Dragons setting in a tavern after a successful quest. And just the name of it, Red Dragon Inn, it can easily be turned into a drinking game. Yeah. It's a game that has no drinking game mechanics built into it, but so much so wants to be a drinking game yeah. that like the idea of building a drinking game rules into it is like a single line you would have to add to the rule book where it's like whenever you drink or draw a drink card and play it, uh, move your intoxication level that much higher. Also, when you do this, drink that much liquor. I like, mean, that's the, the only rule you have this, to have. The simple one I would think of is, because you take a, a level of intoxication per the drink, it would just, you would take drinks to equal to yeah. that number. So, you there take three levels. Fun. You take three levels of intoxication, you take three drinks. Yeah. Because all you do for that game, the only two objectives, drink your opponents under the table, and take all their money. Yeah. Well, don't uh, run out of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't run out of money. I do, uh, I, I enjoy the idea of making that a drinking game. Because in theory, you have 20 levels of uh, intoxication you can take before you lose. Now, there's ways to futz with that because you can lower your stamina or fortitude through different poisons and stuff, which doesn't count as drinking. But I still love the idea of playing that game as a drinking game and being like 18 drinks in and being just the sloppiest drunk and still trying to play this game and not <laughs> pass out. Because <laughs> that's the story of the game. If you get too intoxicated, you literally pass out in-game. Yeah. And I love the idea of getting to, like, 20 drinks in and actually having to fight the urge to pass out both in-game and in-game life. <laughs> when you pass out in the game, you pass out in real life. Uh, and then next up, there's also kind of team-based games. So classic examples of these would be, like, code names or essentially any game where it splits the group into teams. So another example would be, like, charades, if you've played that before. Not really a board game. But you're split up into teams, and the teams have to work against each other, coming yeah. up with answers and stuff like that. Be stuff like Cranium, Pictionary. Anything where you are on a team of people against another team of people. I guess, sorry. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, team games. Not as much to say about team games. Yeah. And another genre that I stumbled across a name for that I'd never heard, but now that I've heard the name, it seems reasonable... Worker placement games. Worker placement's a very common genre. Essentially the way it works is 
Everyone has a finite number of workers, so classic example of this is uh, Stone Age. And Lords of Waterdeep also. Lords of Waterdeep as well. Uh, Stone Age, an example, each player is in control of a tribe of people during the Stone Age, and you have to send your people to collect resources, so you only have, like, say, four people in your tribe, Mm -hmm. uh, and you have to choose what tasks you want to send your people to to try and collect resources. Uh, And then you also, like, as an option, can send two of your people to a shack as their opportunity. And then when they come back, there's actually three people because of reproduction. The oh, shack, okay. It, it's the fuck shack. They go <laughs> to the fuck shack together. Uh, but yeah, it's the idea of you have a finite number of people and you have to choose what tasks you want to do with your finite number of people. There's some worker placement games that don't look like worker placements right away because you're not necessarily placing workers. But anytime you have a finite re- uh, resource that dictates how many actions you get to take... It ends up being a worker placement style game where your reason, uh, the number of resources dictates the number of actions. Yeah, you place whatever tokens you have to, I guess, control as much area or gain as many resources yeah. as possible. Those will also sometimes get like easily mixed in with territory control games. Right? True. You yeah. To place, uh, it's not the game itself, isn't it? But the Game of Thrones game where you have to put down your limited tokens to leave uh, control of a territory, even when you leave it, so that you're marking it essentially. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, Back to, like, the idea that Matt was just talking about within Stone Age. If I send two people to the Love Shack to make more people, the Love Shack is now occupied. You guys cannot send people to the Love Shack. So it's both a thing where I'm doing it to gain a bit of a benefit, but also to prevent you guys from getting the same benefit. So that's the idea behind a worker placement game. They're super enjoyable. Uh, super fun little games that you get to play. Um, I shouldn't say little because most of them tend to be fairly in-depth with the rules. But yeah, super fun to play. Yep, typically uh, fairly quick to pick up, but the uh, the scoring at the end can be a little confusing at times. And, and the level of strategy. They're uh, the classic line about different games, uh, minutes to learn, hour, or years to master, where it's like, you'll understand what you're doing in the game and what the different actions are really quickly, but to understand what actions the best action to take will take uh, multiple playthroughs before you start understanding what the right action to take at any given moment is. Uh, we also mentioned this already, but territory control is another style of game. Think of risk. Uh, anytime you have units on a board that control a certain portion of the board and you have to kind of try and wrest control from other players by moving your troops out while also maintaining control of your current area, it's a territory control game. Yet risk civilization. Lords of the Underdark is another fun one. It's a fairly recent one where you play as different tribes of dark elves in the Underdark and you have to control more and more of the Underdark than your opponents. Also, combat games, which are heavily based around fighting either the other players or a central threat, and whoever does the most damage to the central threat will win. And, of course, like there is a lot of those games that don't fall into any categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that uh, I've thought of a lot was uh, Yomi, yeah. where it's really just a deck of cards that have different moves on it, and uh, there's no you know deck building or anything of this. It's just li- you literally trying to outplay your opponent by playing the right card that counters their card. Yeah. I guess that would fall into the uh, more general classification as strategy game. Yeah, it's like every time you place a card, it's we're kind of like the, game, the card game War, where you're just trying to beat them in a uh, rock-paper-scissors-esque style of combat, where uh, pretty much what Yomi is, is you pick your deck, which is a specific character, so it's done in the style of a fighting game, and then you have, basically you pick a certain amount of cards that, like you say, you might have more grapple cards because of that. Well, grapple beats uh, defense, defense beats attack, attack beats grapple. And you're trying to just think of what your opponent does, and are they going to play one of their uh, less likely cards right now that I can counter easily, or are they going to play one of their standard cards that would beat mine if I played it? And it's just the mind game. 
Yeah. Uh, and then the last kind of categorization of games that I want to talk about is a fairly recent development in games. Only started appearing like within the past probably six years or so. Is Legacy Games. Yeah. Uh, fairly recent addition. Uh, kind of the classic example I use to explain it is Risk Legacy. Uh, a legacy game is a game that you play multiple times and it evolves over the course of playing, but can in theory only be played as a whole once. So in Risk Legacy, it's played over the course of, I think it's 12 different games of Risk, and each game of Risk affects the way the future games of Risks look. So for instance, uh, at a certain point in Risk Legacy, uh, players gain the access to nukes, and you can nuke another player and it'll remove them from a certain territory. However, the downside to that is you mark that territory as being nuked and it's irradiated in future games and thus can't be occupied. Yeah. And so you're constantly changing the game over your play. Another one is Pandemic Legacy. Yeah. And this one, uh, the four diseases are much more resilient and harder to cure. So over the course of the game, populations of different cities will decline and decline to the point where nobody lives in those cities and it's dangerous to move through them. So you have to kind of navigate around certain cities and your board starts getting more and more closed off as you play. Uh, and then uh, Betrayal also has a legacy version, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Betrayal Legacy is phenomenal just because of the fact that as you play through, you have you end up building a whole story because you're playing as a single family throughout the ages. Yeah. And you build a story about how your family, like collected this heirloom and now it's significant to them every time they manage to find it in this goddamn fucking haunted house yeah and then yeah there's a lot of games that have legacy versions uh werewolf has a legacy version as well yeah. where the depending on if the werewolves or humans win introduces new character types yeah so for instance stronger. if the werewolves win uh a couple games then the humans end up sending like more hunters or similar kind of ideas because like this town is rumored to have werewolves and the rumors are becoming more and more prevalent. So werewolf hunters start coming to the town to start hunting for them. Whereas if the humans end up winning a couple games, then the werewolves like become mad at the humans for killing so many of their kind that more powerful werewolves start coming to this town to try and wreak revenge. If I remember correctly, isn't there eventually exploding werewolves? Yep. <laughs> there's a, So if you've ever played werewolf, there's a hunter class, which is a normal human, but if they're ever killed... Before anything else happens, they get to choose another player to shoot with their dying breath. Werewolf uh, Legacy added an exploding werewolf, which is if they're ever killed, uh, before their dying breath, they explode and kill another, yeah. player, <laughs> another player. Well, that's another thing to have nightmares about now. Great. Exploding werewolves? Exploding werewolves. Yeah, and for uh, Legacy games, usually the best thing to do is have the same group of people go through the whole game, just because it builds up that story better with yeah. the game and the board changing constantly. But you don't have to for Legacy games. Now, yeah. would, would you classify that Resident Evil game that we're playing through as a Legacy game? Or uh, I would not, because the game doesn't require any adjustments that cannot be reversed. Yeah, because it's just a full campaign that you yeah, play it, through, it, and each level is different on a fundamental level. Yeah, yeah, so. it's not like a, the difference between a campaign-based game and a Legacy game is that the legacy game has impact on the game as you go forward and your choices have lasting consequences. For example, when you irradiate a spot in Risk Legacy, you actually physically draw and destroy it on the board. So that spot is just marked permanently on the board. Okay. Yeah. Whereas we don't really see that in the mm. Resident Evil game. There are some choices we make that have impact, but it's less to that degree. It's more to the degree of, like, we chose to use too many healing items in this scenario, so we have less going into the next one. So it's more of... Uh, more like a, a strategy game that's more continuous. Yeah, yeah strategy of a continuous. Maybe story. some resource management, like it's, Resident Evil. It's got a campaign mm -hmm. aspect rather than just a full legacy aspect. Right. Yeah. yeah. The other difference is that legacy games can't really be played through again because 
for instance, as you play through Werewolf Legacy, you could continue to play it as a game of Werewolf after you're done, but you couldn't play through the whole Legacy campaign again. Because a part of Legacy games, and this is one thing that a lot of people have a hard time with, is destroying stuff. Like, there'll be a times when, like, in Pandemic uh, Legacy, you'll be like, oh, we have a cure that will cure this disease, but we only get to use it once over the entire game. So as we use this cure, we have to tear the card to pieces to ensure we never use it again. So you use the cure, cure the disease, tear the card to pieces, so you can't go through and play the game again because that card's just gone now. I mean, you technically could if you just instead, like, an area that's irradiated. Just Those aren't the rules, Matt. Yes, it's true. You yeah. could, in theory, play through a legacy uh, campaign but again. I, su I suppose that goes against the whole idea it's of the Against the, the mythos legacy. of the game. Yeah. yeah. Like, for example, I believe Werewolf and Betrayal both come with these nice books that you have to write into yep. to, like, to describe what's going on. So you can actually, after the game is done, you and the group can go back through the book and just look at all like the crazy stuff that happened too. Yeah, yeah. So those are kind of some different classifications of games. So when you go to just, your local game retailer, you can be like, "I'm looking for a legacy deck builder with territory control aspects," <laughs> and they'll be like, uh, "That does not exist." And you're like, "But, but these are the things I know I enjoy." And then you go to Kickstarter. Yeah, and you start your own game. <laughs> And it doesn't matter if you have a plan, because if you get enough money, you can pay someone to do it for you. Yeah. And then before we leave genres, I'm just going to throw out the simple puzzle games that just involve patterns and numbers and stuff. Yeah. True. Fun games. Mahjong. Now, Matt, can I say what my favorite game is now? I think you can, Or do you guys want to guess? Uh, I have hmm. mentioned it now. I have a guess. My guess is Betrayal at House on the Hill. Yeah, Betrayal at House on the Hill is my favorite game. Yeah. I was going to guess Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is a really good game, but I... In all sorts of media, my favorite video game, board games, all have that horror genre called Cthulhu-esque stuff. So Betrayal of House on the Hill just hits all those sweet spots where it's got like the role-playing mechanic in it with a variety of games. Like you never know what you're going into with it, so it's so fresh. It's just, I have so much fun just going through that game constantly. And the tiles and the house creation is just so fun. Yeah. <clears throat> Matt, do you want to mention your favorite game? Sure. My favorite game is Splendor. It's a... <laughs> Splendor is a splendid game. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I got one in. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, Keith. It's one we haven't mentioned, but it's a strategy-based game revolving around buying up land, various mines and stuff, by using various jewels that you can obtain for yourself. And the amount of jewels that you can have is dependent on the number of players in the game. And the objective is to gain most the most points at the end of the game. Uh, I really enjoy Splendor. It's another one of those really easy to pick up, but... A uh, fair bit of strategy that you don't expect on your first playthrough. I'll mention my favorite game. We have not mentioned it. Um, I I got two up there. One of them we did mention. So Heroes 1, it is one of my favorite oh, games. Right. It's not my absolute favorite, but it's up there. My other favorite is another game I backed on Kickstarter and have not for a second regret, regretted backing. It's called Arcadia Quest. Arcadia it's a phenomenal game. Essentially, each player controls a guild of heroes. And your guild uh, has three different heroes who all have different powers. And you fight through different quests. It's another one of those kind of almost cooperative games where your heroes have been tasked with defeating some villains in the town. But also, super not cooperative because part of the things you'll be doing is killing other heroes while you're going through. Because you're like, oh, Keith's hero's only got one health left. I can just do a pop shot right now while yeah, he's not looking. You get the victory points for eliminating players from other uh, guilds. Yeah. Uh, so it's a fantastic game where you just kind of like have both the pve uh, quests where it's like all right we have to kill so many goblins we have to kill the minotaur and we have to rescue an eagle from its cage because it's the lord's eagle 
at the same time, we also have PvP quests where there's a quest for each player who's playing, and if you kill one of their heroes, you get a PvP quest completed. Also, I believe you get specific points for eliminating the most. Yes, there's uh, bonus points for killing the most other players. So you can either go full PvE and just, like, I'm going to ignore the other players, and I'm just going to kill off all the monsters and get this quest over real quick. Or you can be a troll and be like, I'm going to kill everybody else so many times that no one can get anything done. And before they know it, the game will be over because we didn't complete the quest, but because everyone is fucking dead. <laughs> it's such a fun, like, wacky little game and you, like, collect different items over the course and you go shopping and you use what you're shopping. It also is like, drafting mechanics, which is something we didn't discuss. But anytime you have a handful of cards, you choose one and pass the rest to the player next to you. It's a drafting game. You repeat this process until you end up with a new hand of cards full of ones that you chose. I want to add a side note about the creation of board games and board game pieces. One of the things I like the most about Splendor is the tokens that are used for the jewels. They're so nice. They're solid plastic. You're not going to damage them for a very long time. Yeah, they got like the heft of like a nice quality poker chip to them. Yeah. Yeah. So I love it when games, when makers of games put in the effort to make the pieces last. So, so many times at this boardroom game cafe, I picked up... Uh, a board game to play and all the pieces are so worn out because there's drinks on the table people are playing with them multiple hands are going all over the pieces they're all getting so worn out natural consequence but anytime a game has that kind of long longevity built into it it's always super nice. all right um so i have devised a little game for us to play today um i call this game peter's great at making games let's make some peter games so, the way it works is I have five different categories of games. Now, something you may or may not know is a lot of people make games out there. A lot of games get made. A lot of those games are a little bit fucking weird. <laughs> so, what I've done is for each of these categories, I've picked two real games, as well as a game I have considered making in the past, and I'm going to give you a brief description of each, and then you have to guess which one is the game I'm considering making, and which ones are the ones that are absolutely real games that are out there. So to start off, I'll start with legacy games because this one I think will be the easiest. So to explain how it's going to work a little bit, uh, I'll list the title of the game, give a brief description of the game, and then I'll give you both an opportunity to ask one question about any of the three games I've described. And then you both have to guess which one it is. At the end of the game, whoever has the fewest points loses and we'll come up with a punishment for the next episode for you to suffer through probably like eat a hot pepper before we start recording and have to <laughs> suffer through that during the intro oh great if i lose i might die <laughs> uh however because i don't know how difficult this is going to be if neither one of you gets more than one point so if the most points either one of you gets is one I'll punish myself and make myself do that punishment for making this test okay. too goddamn difficult. Okay, just before we start the game, I'm back over for a second. Yeah, so what if we just, you know, we don't get any of them right? I mean, he just has to eat all of them. Oh, that's a, that's a good strategy. Yeah. So here's a thought for you, Matt. Keith could just be trying to get you to sabotage yourself so to guarantee he wins. Keith? <laughs> I don't know how he heard that. Well, it seems all the cards are on the table. Let's get in this. All right, so first up, we have Legacy Games. Uh, the free, three games I have uh, are called Gloomhaven, Charterstone, and Conquest colon Con. So first up, Gloomhaven is a game where you play as a bunch of heroers, uh, heroers, heroes in a world very similar to kind of a Forgotten Realm style D&D realm, except they created their whole suite of races uh, for themselves. Uh, and you play as a campaign or a group of 
party of adventurers. Fuck, words are hard. <laughs> a party of adventurers who are kind of questing through the land, discovering good and evil as you play, uh, and working together as you play. Charterstone is a competitive uh, legacy game where you are each kind of founding towns in this unknown land. And as you found towns, they kind of indicate where ruins are found in future games. And those ruins kind of indicate where you kind of have different stuff that can be found in the future games that you play. And it's a competitive kind of uh, territory control style game. Finally, there's Conquest Con, which is a game where you play as different uh, cons uh, during the age of Genghis Khan when the Mongols were all invading China. And you're all kind of fighting to be the greatest Khan while also simultaneously invading China. So you end up fighting with each other while also fighting with China. At the same time, there is a kind of autonomous player who represents Genghis Khan who fucks everyone's shit up and you just kind of try and stay out of his way. Fun part about this game is halfway through the game, the Great Wall of China gets built dependent on where you guys have fucked up China the most over the course of the first <laughs> half of the game. Uh, now, I, I know you said we could ask a question, but I have a question just to clarify something about the game. Yeah. yeah for the game, you said you made up one of these and that's what yes. we're trying to figure out what it is. Yes. Are you? Is this a game you've just made up or it, could it be you've decided that it's another board game that should be turned into a legacy game? This is uh, completely made up by me. This is not a different game that should become a legacy. Oh, okay. I just want clarification on that. Uh, so let's see a question. Uh, for the last game, I'm going to ask, is that the game you made up? Interesting question. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to allow that to be one of your two questions. <laughs> well, I have to think of my question. You yeah. go first, Matt. Well, I don't think I have any question for this set of games right now. That last game... I don't think you created that one because that just sounds too good of an idea to not be made already. <laughs> Could have went another angle on that one there, man. That's too good of an idea, Peter. It's too good of an idea. Peter doesn't have good ideas. Peter has shit ideas, and this is a good uh, idea, so, so it's clearly not Peter's I'm, idea. The one question we get, is it per round or through the whole game? Per round. Per round. So yep. we can ask, so might as well yep. use it up for each round. Anything uh, like, how many players does it work for? Is it fun? What kind of components do you have? Right. How many different races for that first one? Uh, for Gloomhaven? Yes. I think there's like four different races, but each of the races have like different classes that they can specialize into that no one else can. Okay. I don't know the names of the races off the top of my head. I apologize. <laughs> or maybe I just haven't thought of the names of the races. <laughs> off you know yet. what? I'm going to ask a question here to try to decide, but I think I already know what the game is that was made up. So what I'm going to ask is for uh, the second game there, Stonehaven. Uh, Charterstone. Charterstone. Yes. Who published it? I believe it is Refurbished Games is the name of the publisher. Yeah, I'm going to guess the one that you came up with is the first one. The Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven. What's your guess, Keith? I think it's Khan. The correct answer is Khan. Oh! Peter, make this board game. I am... Oh, it sounds fucking fun. I, like, I was making up this game and I was like, God damn it, now I just want to play this game where you play as Khan to invade China. As soon as you said that the Great Wall of China was going to be made wherever... We mess things up. That was a big old selling point for me. I'm like, ooh. Oh, it definitely sounded like a fun game. What kind of shape can we make that great wall? <laughs> okay, <'cause>, like, <laughs> Let's see if we can make a dick wall of China. <laughs> Gloomhaven I've heard of before. I knew that one was a real Yeah, I, I, I heard of Gloomhaven also. Con, just like, I, I haven't heard of a Conquest game like that. Yeah. So if you had to ask questions, more questions about the Conquest Con yeah. game, I was going to come up with this fake backstory where, like, it's the third game in the Conquest series, and the first two were not legacy games, and they decided to, like, try and make a legacy version of it, and the first one was, like, Pharaohs, and the second one was, like, Caesars, and you play in, like, Egypt and Rome, respectively. I had this whole fucking story built up about <laughs> Conquest Con. <laughs> Alright, uh, so point for Keith, no points for Matt. Moving on to Category 2, 
Category 2 is all about themed games. So, took a theme, added a game to it. Who knows if it was a good idea or not. First up, we have Werewords, which is a werewolf-themed vocabulary game where you have to hide that you're a werewolf while also proving that you know lots of words. (laughs) Next up, there is Bob Ross, The Art of Chill, which is a board game based on the Bob Ross TV show, The Art of Painting, or The Joy of Painting, where you essentially paint paintings alongside Bob Ross and try and paint paintings better than Bob Ross does. And then there is... Isn't that just the TV show? It's essentially the TV show (laughs) in a board game. And then there is Thwip Thwip Spider-Man, which is a game where you play as, essentially in the multiverse, different Spider-Mans who all unlock the powers at the same time and have to prove that you're the best of the new Spider-Mans. Oh, these these concepts. Why? I don't know. (laughs) One of them I know because one of them I made up. (laughs) I'm not even sure what to ask in this situation. Uh. Now, what kind of supplies comes with the Bob Ross board game? So the Bob Ross board game, uh, the idea is to paint, but you don't actually have painting supplies with it. Uh, it does come with an easel to put the painting that he's working on, as well as a little miniature Bob Ross to track his progress on the painting, uh, as well as your own little kind of boards where you track the components that you've collected in forms of paints, as well as the different kind of painting components. So like your fan brush and your paint knife. That's what it's called, right? A paint knife? Sure. Paint knife. <laughs> uh, and then I will ask for Thwip Thwip Spider-Man. Thwip Thwip Spider-Man. Uh, the question is, what year did it come out? Uh, Thwip Thwip Spider-Man actually came out in 2018. I'm going to say Thwip Thwip Spider-Man and in 2018 it came out. I think it means out of your head. And Matt? I'm going to have to go with the Bob Ross one. Point to Keith. Yep. Thwip Thwip Spider-Man is a fake game uh, that I came up with upon hearing that they were making the Spider-Man multiverse movie, uh, Spider-Man into the uh, Spider-Verse. And I was like, they're making that into a movie? Maybe they're going to make a board game based on this. You see, for the Bob Ross one, it was so far out of the, like out of nowhere that like there's no way that was what was just randomly made up that has to exist. But but also, Peter. Uh, oh, I know, but like... the. Uh, a Bob Ross game like that not existing just doesn't make sense. Yeah, uh, so the best part, the Bob Ross game came out in, like, 2017. What? I know, it's amazing. Uh, we have copies at the cafe to play. <laughs> it's the weirdest fucking game you'll ever play. And then, for the the spelling werewolf one, that's like, okay, that, I, that, that definitely exists. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why it exists, but it absolutely exists. It's just, like, the werewolf theme of game that has come off, like, Mafia and all that. It's just... So easy to pull into different things I'm that a- it existing, it makes sense. I'm actually pretty sure I played that one before. <laughs> so, next up, my next category of games that I may or may not have created is cooperative games. <laughs> so, first up, we have First Martians, where you play as a crew of humans who have been sent to Mars to start to colonize it so that more humans can actually move there. And you learn just how treacherous the Red Planet is, so you have to fight against uh, mechanical storms and just losing dwindling supplies and all that stuff to try and not only survive, but to build a lasting colony that other people can survive in. Uh, next up is Robo Revolution. Uh, surprising twist: lots of players like, or lots of companies have made uh, zombie uh, apocalypse games. This one is set in a Robo Apocalypse game where you have to work together to kind of hide the last vestiges of humanity from robots while also farming for supplies. And then finally, we have Stuffed Fables. Stuffed Fables is a game where you play as a group of stuffed animals tasked with protecting a young girl from the god of nightmares. 
God of Nightmares. <laughs> yep. I don't want to guess the first one because I'm pretty sure I've heard about that game before. Okay. But I don't know if I've heard of it by coming across the game or heard of it through you actually telling me about your idea. <laughs> that is the I hard like to thing. talk about my ideas. Uh, uh, for the Robot Apocalypse game. Robo Revolution, yes. What are the resources you gather? Uh, so the main thing that you try and gather is food and water, uh, but in kind of some more difficult scenarios, you also have to gather, like, wood to build fires and stuff like that, as well as uh, some sort of, like, computing components. I don't remember the specifics of it, but, like, because one of the more difficult scenarios is you're trying to find a way to defeat the robot, so you have to collect, uh, like, pieces of code, I think it was, uh, so that you can find a way to hack into the robots. Now, for the Martians one, yes. how do you uh, determine that the game is actually complete, either win or loss? So there will be, at the beginning of each game, uh, you're essentially playing through different scenarios, and each scenario has specific goals that have to be met, and so you're, there's usually like a time counter, like you only have a certain number of days to complete it, so if the time counter runs out, it's a loss, and if you manage to, for instance, uh, fix your habitat... Because, like, one of the earlier scenarios is, like, your habitat has lost life support, so you have to fix that within two days or else everybody dies. Which is weird, because you would think if you're on Mars, two days is a long time to go without life support. <laughs> um, but, yeah, if you manage to fix the components and get the rover up and running in a set amount of time and complete whatever the scenario objectives are, then you win. And if you don't do it in enough time, you die of starvation or water loss. Okay. Do you guys have guesses? I think I have an idea. Do you have a guess? Yeah, I I do. I am going to guess the Martians, the first Martians. Keith? Yeah, you see, I, I have a bit of a difficult here uh, with this one. I want to say it's the God of Nightmare one, but I'm not going to go with that one. Because for me, I, I it's like among the sleep and stuff, a lot of stuff has come out with that theme. So it's like, well, people have thought of it. So it's definitely could be something else. And I really want it to be a game because I'm probably going to go pick it up if it is. So I'm going to go with the second one, the robot one. And that's three points for Keith. Damn. <laughs> Robo Revolution is the game I was making up. Stuff Fables, a game about playing as teddy bears protecting a young girl from the God of Nightmares. 100% a real game. Yeah. Fucking phenomenal. Because there's like a lot of games that have that theme. It's like, it's there's so many games I've heard of with that. For it to not have a board game does not make sense at this point. Yeah. So Keith is currently winning 3 nothing, which is not great for Matt, given that there's only two questions remaining. <laughs> yep. But we're going to play through them anyways. Cause <laughs> okay. Time for pride, Matt. You can do this. I believe in you. Yeah. Let's go for a solid 100% on loss. <laughs> let's go. All right. So, story-based games. There were a lot of story-based games I could pick from, so I specifically chose three with, why the fuck is this a story? This is such a sad story. Who the fuck wants to play this game? Was my thinking behind these games, all right? <laughs> is that the category? No, it's... The cat <laughs> why would anyone want to play this? <laughs> the category is story games, but the subcategory is really sad story games. So first off, I have Holding On, The Troubled Life of Billy Kerr, where you play as a group of nurses in the intensive care unit where an elderly man by the name of Billy Kerr is brought in and he is on his deathbed and you have to deal with him and help him cope with death. God knows why that was a game anyone came up with. God knows why I would come up with that game. Who knows which it is. Uh, second up, we have Gaia's Fury, which is a game about uh, the kind of last legs of humanity where the Earth has uh, essentially decided that humanity is a problem and has stopped producing oxygen 
And so, in theory, the goal of the game is to, like, build a survivable habitat on Earth, but it's more so just coping with the fact that humanity fucked up Earth too bad, and humanity's clearly not going to continue to survive. Uh, and dealing with that story. And then the third one is The Grizzled, which is a game where you play as a bunch of soldiers during World War II, and it's not about, like, fighting, it's about just surviving life in the trenches and all the depressing shit that happens to you while your whole life is inside of the trenches. Alright, I've got my question right now. What kind of game pieces come with the first game? Uh, the Troubled Life of Billy Kerr? Yes. Uh, there's not a lot of, like, pawns or, like, board interaction. It's a lot more cards and reading off the cards and kind of dealing with uh, different options you have on the character. Okay, I was kind of hoping there was going to be a figure of some sort of sickbed and some guy in the sickbed. <laughs> uh, there is a board that kind of tracks, like, Billy's mental stability as well as your own kind of levels of depression. <laughs> and so depending on, like, the actions that you take in response to the different cards that come up, you kind of adjust those bars as you go. Your goal is to make sure Billy's happy when he dies, I think. I don't uh, for Grizzled... Yes. Uh... I don't know if this counts as one question or two, but I'm trying to figure out, essentially, is it a, like, is it a cooperative game or not? Like, how many people can win the game? And uh, it is a fully cooperative game. I think it is four to five players. Oh. Uh, well, not four to five. I think it's three to five players uh, in that range. Uh, but yeah, fully cooperative. You're all in the same trenches together. There's no winning or losing. There's just surviving. I'm going to go with the second game. Matt? I'm going to go with the first. Alright, uh, well, the Holding On the Troubled Life of Billy Kerr is a very real game that makes me sad every time I look at the box. <laughs> Guy's Fury is not a real game. Way to go, Keith. You're now four for four. Oh my god. And now we go into the final category, which is team games. Alright, so, first up, uh, we have Shadows colon Amsterdam, which is presumably the first game in the Amsterdam, uh, or not the Amsterdam series, the Shadows series. Uh, a second one has not been released yet, but I assume it's the first. Um, which takes place in a Zootopia-style world, where instead of humans, it's a bunch of anthropomorphic animals. That is not necessary to know how the game plays. The way the game plays, where uh, the way the gameplay works, is you both teams represent uh, groups of kind of private eyes or kind of uh, private detectives that you hire, and you've both been hired to solve the same crime, and so you have to run around the uh, map looking for clues. But also, uh, your communication system has been garbled. So rather than getting text and words, uh, all you're given is pictures of where you have to go. And you have to interpret these pictures to understand where in the city you have to go. Uh, it's an interesting game. Or it will be when I make it. <laughs> uh, next up, we have Captain Sonar. In Captain Sonar, uh, you're split into two teams. And both teams represent a crew of a submarine. And... The way that works is each person has a specific job on the submarine. So, for instance, the captain dictates where you go. Your goal is to find the other submarine and destroy it. But uh, instead of having a map that everyone plays on, you both have maps behind shields. And you're looking at the map and listening to the directions that the other team's saying. Like, go west, go west, go north. And you're plotting it on a map to try and figure out where they could possibly be on the map to avoid all the kind of landmines and debris in the ocean. And then finally, the third game on my list is called Bloodbath. It is a game based on first-person shooters and the team deathmatch variety of those. So both players play, or both teams play as a team in a team deathmatch game, and you kind of run around the board and collecting different guns and power-ups and using those to kill the other team and trying to get the most or be the first team to make it to a specific number of kills. 
I believe it's 20 kills uh, ends the game. But it's a lot of running around and finding a rocket launcher and then killing someone. And if you get killed, you drop all your shit on the ground and the next person can run through and grab your rocket launcher that you were using. What was the name of the first game again? The name of the first game was Shadows Colon Amsterdam. Uh, when was that one released? That one was released in 2016. What was the name of the last one? The name of the last one was Bloodbath. Bloodbath. Based on the kind of Doom or Quake right. or Halo style. Yeah, an arena shooter. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to feel really dumb for saying this if it's, if it's wrong, but I'm pretty sure I've actually seen that board game. So my guess is going to be the first one. Uh, I am going to say Captain Sonar, because that 100% sounds like a game you would make, title-wise. does sound like a game I would make. So, Shadows Colon Amsterdam is a real game. Yeah. Here's the uh, artwork on the box, if I can pull it up for you real quick. Yeah, I, I, I believe I did remember seeing that one uh, once or twice in passing. And it looked interesting, but I just never had the time to go in on it. Here's the German cover of the box, because I can't find the English cover of the box. It's Zootopia, except you're private huh. detectives. Captain Sonar, also a real game. Okay. Bloodbath, not a real game. There are arena shooter style games out there. I think it's called Adrenaline is the one I'm thinking of, but it is not a team game. It is fully free for all. Just kill as many other people. Yeah, as I feel can. really dumb now that I've thought of actually seen that game. So, Keith wins with four points to Matt's zero points. I went perfect score. (laughs) Yeah, the goal of the game was to guess which of the games was real, right? Just to add a one and a zero in front of that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. so that was the game. We'll uh, come up with some sort of punishment from Matt later. Can't wait. Oh, we'll bring a tarantula, and Matt has to pet the tarantula while doing the intro. That's fair. And Matt never came back to another podcast, (laughs) which is fair, because we needed to find someone to replace his puns. (laughs) Uh. All right. Uh, do you guys have anything else you wanted to talk about with regards to board games? I think we covered it all. Do you have a question of the day, Keith? Matt took mine. Was it, what's your favorite board game? Yeah. Oh. I'm sorry. God damn it, man. I'm just happy I destroyed him in that quiz game. Yeah, you, you more did. than made you, up for You it. got redemption. <laughs> so this brings us to my new favorite segment of the podcast. That is Corrections. So, uh, I'm going to quickly pull up our email and read a list of corrections from our last uh, episode of the podcast. Uh, And that is all of the corrections from our last podcast. We continue to be perfect as ever. Way to go, guys. I'm really proud of you, and I'm proud of us. Go team. It's not easy work, but someone has to do it. Someone has to be perfect. Not everyone can do it, but at least we know that we can be perfect. Uh, If you disagree with our claim that we're perfect... Feel free to email us some corrections. Uh, email us at whatismypodcastabout at gmail.com. That is whatismypodcastabout at gmail.com. Spelt the way all of those words are normally spelt. Also, a thank you again to Tachi Camargo for providing today's episode theme. And also, they did have a bit of a comment in the email as well that I'm just going to read off now, which is, congrats, the podcast is great. Smile face. Thank you, Tachi. We will debate that topic on our next episode of the podcast. (laughs) Uh, So once again, thank you all for listening to our podcast. As a quick reminder, our podcast can be found on all major podcasting services. Uh, Make sure to tune in in two weeks time for the next topic, our next episode of our podcast, which we may or may not have decided yet. It depends on how quickly Matt can play video games. As a quick reminder, please email us if you have any ideas for what you think our topic should be. Uh, and make sure you like, comment, and subscribe. I still hate saying those fucking words. I feel like a YouTube You see, you just, what you got is like, don't forget to smash that like button. Yeah, uh, do all of those things. It, 
it is super helpful if we get feedback on our podcast and we know what works and what doesn't work. For instance, if you like the uh, correction section of our podcast where we point out corrections from our previous episodes, let us know. And if you don't like our corrections podcast, our correction portions, email us a correction about the fact that we're not perfect. Or if you just want to uh, put in your word, just give us what your favorite board game is. Because yeah. we're... We would like to hear from anyone. I mean, there's a lot of board games. It's hard to go through all of them. So maybe we'll find a game that we never knew of that will be Yeah. Good. Yeah. And um, hopefully we've enlightened you on some other potential games that you might like to try. Also, uh, additional notes. Uh, we promised, uh, or at least I promised to read out a comment that was sent to us via email. This comment was sent to us via email. It might be an idea for a future topic. It might just be a single word comment. So Mothman. That was sent to us via email from someone by the name of Hannah. So... Thank you, Hannah. Was that on the... behalf of you? We say Mothman. Was that the title of the email, or the... yes, that was both the title and the content of the email. Just Mothman. Uh, is that a threat, a promise, or an announcement? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Hannah Bennett. Uh, Mothman to you as well. to kill a bunch of babies.